there. Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from a very special guest speaker who we're excited to have with us for this episode. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! During the Christmas rush, a hurried housewife ran out in a panic to get her Christmas cards and she bought a box of 200. She liked the picture on the front, but she rushed back home and without even reading the message inside, she simply signed them, addressed them, stamped them, and put them in the mail. Well, the next day, she realized she wanted to send one more card, and she was in luck. There was one card left in the box. And so as she started to sign it, she thought, I'll look at the two-line message that's inside the card. And to her dismay, it said, "'Tis just a little Christmas cheer to say, a gift will soon be on the way." Now, unlike this lady who investigated and kind of had a real dismay and distraction, last week we saw that God chose very simple, very ordinary, in fact, very ill-looked-at people called shepherds to investigate and be the first eyewitnesses of Christ. There was no royalty that Jesus appeared to. There was no media. There was no one even with clout. Just these sheep herders that came and saw Jesus and were the first eyewitnesses. And from that, we learned by choosing these sheep herders that people don't usually find God by accident, but they do so by earnestly seeking him. It's why Jeremiah says that if you seek me, God says, you'll find me. It's why James says, if you'll draw close to me, I will draw close to you. And I, as I said last week, find this entire Christmas story full of surprises. And today, I want us to look at the biggest one, the very birth of the Christ child. Because you see, the first Jewish mind anticipated the coming of God's Son. They knew there would be a Messiah, a Savior to come to the world. But the way the Advent unfolded was so drastically different than any of them expected. And so it wasn't surprising that most of them did not recognize their arrival when it actually came to be. So like last week, this morning, I want us to kind of put our feet into the feet of those at the first Christmas, because this is a very familiar story about the birth of Christ, and I want us to try to give it a fresh outlook, and in doing so, gain some insight how God still works in our lives today. So here's surprise number one. The timing of the birth of Jesus was unexpected. In fact, in Luke 2, the very first verse, it tells us this. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Now, I've got to tell you, I don't believe if I had been in charge of the universe that I would have picked the time of Caesar Augustus to send Jesus, even if we, like God, had chosen the Jewish race to be the progenitors of Christ, I think it would have made much more common or worldly sense to choose, say, the time of David. During the reign of David, the Jews were a world superpower. Under his kingship, they unified, unified as a people. They had momentum, wealth, influence. And to me, it just would seem so natural to have the Messiah the one come right after David died to be his successor and conquer the world? Or wouldn't it be common sense more to maybe have him come during the time of Constantine around 324 AD? If you don't know who Constantine is, he was a devout man of God. 
He was a king, and he made Christianity the law of the land. To me, it would seem logical to have Christ come in a day where we had a godly man in power. I mean, Jesus would have had hardly no opposition. Or let's come to the modern time. Wouldn't it make sense for him to come, say, right after the assassination of John F. Kennedy? I mean, here is a world that's decimated and hungry for leadership, and Jesus could come and lead us. Or maybe right after 9-11, when the entire world is seeking answers and has lost all hope, and Jesus could come and give hope to the entire world. So I just have to think, if, if I was God, I probably would not have picked this time. I'd have picked another time other than the days of Caesar Augustus. But you know what? Maybe that's why Isaiah 55 says, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And his timing, when you look at it, is absolutely perfect. Luke says, at that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed a census. So let me just give you a couple of suggestions why I think this timing ends up being absolutely flawless. You see, 300 years before Christ, a man by the name of Alexander the Great had conquered the world. And one of the great things that Alexander the Great did was kind of gave a universal language. Greek became a language that most everybody in the known world at that time was able to speak. Thus, when Jesus was born, it was one of the rare times in all of history that almost all the people of the world could actually communicate with each other. And after Alexander the Great came, Rome conquered the world. Now, it certainly was no picnic for the Jews to be under Roman oppression, but Rome made it possible for there to be worldwide travel. They built great roads. There were no visas that were required anymore to go from country to another country. That was all unnecessary because Rome had made it a time where you could travel freely. In fact, they called it Pax Romana, which meant a worldwide peace that was established. Now, it was established through Rome's military strength, but it was still there. And so it was a very rare time in the world where missionary travel, like, say, for the Apostle Paul, became extremely easy. And then also at this time, Jews were spread across the globe. When Jesus was born, because of persecution and because of poor economy in Palestine, Jews had settled across the known world. In fact, in every village, there was this little pocket of people who already believed in one God and that he was going to send a Messiah, a Savior, a One, a Son of God. And so the soil was cultivated in almost every region of the world for the reception of the gospel. Maybe that's why Galatians 4.4 says, But when the right time came, God sent his Son. Oh, it wasn't exactly when man maybe expected it, but it was no accident that God picked out this one day in history. His timing was exactly right. In fact, when Jesus was crucified, you may remember they put a sign over his head that read, King of the Jews, and it was given in Greek and in Latin and Hebrew, a reminder that Christ was dying for all peoples, for the whole world at the exact right time. But there was one small detail that had to be worked out, 
And that is the prophet Micah in Micah 5.2 had predicted that the Messiah, the Son of God, would be born in a little town of Bethlehem. The problem was that Joseph and Mary, who were going to be the parents of Jesus, lived in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was approximately 80 miles from Bethlehem, about the distance from here to LaGrange in our southwest or up to Ringgold near the Tennessee line. And in a day where everybody pretty much walked everywhere, that was a long trip. And besides that, Mary at this point in time is almost at full term in her pregnancy. Ladies, how would you like for your fiance to announce to you, we're taking a four day hike from here to LaGrange at that time in your pregnancy? (laughs) No woman would want to do that. She doesn't want to leave her home or, or her family or her obstetrician and certainly doesn't want to take that long of a journey on foot. So God had to make the necessary arrangements. Of all people, Caesar, the emperor, required a census that forced Joseph to register in person in the city of his ancestral roots. I love what Charles Swindoll writes. He writes, Augustus thought he was hot stuff, prancing about the palace, demanding this census, but in reality... He was little more than a wisp of lint on the prophetic page, a pawn in the hands of the commander that was heading Operation Arrival. And then there's a second surprise, and that is, and this is a huge understatement, the conception was very unusual. In fact, when you look at Luke 2 and verse 4, the first part of that, and verse 5, you see that it says that because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. That was the decree. And he took with him, it says, Mary, to whom he was engaged, who is now expecting a child. Let that just kind of sink in for a minute. This couple is engaged, and she's expecting a child. Uh-oh, <laughs> That means that Mary is set to have a baby out of wedlock. Now, in today's culture, unfortunately, that may not be a huge shock, but in that day, it was absolutely scandalous. In fact, her being pregnant and unmarried made the beginning of Joseph and Mary's relationship rocky, to say the least. And i got to ask, wouldn't you think that God would make sure that the home for his son was going to be a very calm and stable and at least non-scandalous environment. And yet, here is God choosing two very inexperienced young kids to be parents. Most scholars think Mary was probably in her mid-teens, 14 or 15, and Joseph wasn't much older, maybe 18, maybe at the most 20. And you add to their inexperience the way this child is conceived, and it put them under enormous pressure. Ladies, let me ask you, how would you have reacted if an angel appears to you as a teenager before you've ever been with a man and says, you're going to have a baby? (laughs) Probably like her. She's shocked. In fact, she asks in Luke 1.34, but but how? I've never slept with a man. You know, wait, isn't this whole thing, man and woman and sex, supposed to be how a baby comes to be? I mean, isn't pregnancy impossible without that? And the angel responds to that very rational inquiry in Luke 1.35 by basically saying, oh, Mary, quit sweating the small stuff. (laughs) I mean, God is going to do this through the Holy Spirit. And what may seem impossible to you 
Well, with God, nothing is impossible. And then on the other side of the coin, guys, those of you who are married, think of that time after you have asked this girl to be your bride and she has said yes, that your fiancé now breaks to you the news that she is pregnant and you know the baby isn't yours. (laughs) Can you imagine that first conversation between Mary and Joseph? We don't know exactly how it went, but you know it had to be awkward. I mean, Joseph could have erupted. In fact, Joseph could have had Mary stoned because having a baby out of wedlock in that day was not just a scandal, it was a capital offense. But Matthew 1.19 kind of tells us something about Joseph. It says, Joseph, her fiancé, being a just man, decided to break the engagement quietly so as not to disgrace her publicly. In other words, this young man was certainly going to tell her it was over because she was pregnant. But because he loved her, or at least respected her, he wanted to do that as gently as possible. And it wasn't until an angel appeared supernaturally in a dream to Joseph that he finally accepted what Mary had been saying all along. And then, only because of their great faith, Do I think they were able to weather all the gossip and all the hardship that must have come their way? Now, is this any way to start a lifetime relationship? Is this any way for the Son of God to come into the world through these young, inexperienced kids and scandal? I've often wondered, how did Mary actually answer not only Joseph, but how about her parents or anyone who heard her contention? Yes, I'm pregnant, but I'm a virgin. You know, can you just imagine that? How is that possible, Mary? Well, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. What? (laughs) That makes no sense whatsoever. And still today, and I get it, people are very, it's very difficult for them to accept the virgin birth. And no wonder it's so unscientific, so unreasonable. But you know what? As a follower of Jesus, like Mary and Joseph, we accept the virgin birth by faith as an actual event. And here's something that has often made me think about how valid this is. Luke, the very author of our text, was a doctor. Now, as a physician, he must have assisted in hundreds of births, and no one would have been more skeptical, and he would not write about something so contrary to medical evidence without first checking it out. Well, here's the truth. He did. In fact, in the third verse of Luke 1, this is what he says. Since I have investigated all the reports in close detail, starting from the story's beginning, I decided to write it all out for you so you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt the reliability of what is here. Luke, the doctor, was absolutely convinced this was true. And you see, Accepting the virgin birth is incredibly important to our faith because without it, we have an immoral Mary, we have a human Jesus, and we have a fallible Bible. But with the virgin birth, our faith stands on the fact that we have Emmanuel, God with us, our Savior. But not only was the birth surprising because the timing was unexpected and the conception was unusual, but there's a third surprise. The place is unassuming as it happened 
as we said, in Bethlehem, not a very important town. Verse 4 tells us Joseph had to go there because of his lineage. He had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home, because that was his family tree. But with the timing, as with the timing, I, I don't think that I would have picked this place. Like I'm told that, that Bethlehem is just a small village. In fact, today's population is somewhere around maybe 15,000, much smaller, of course, on that first Christmas. And I think, why not pick a metropolitan area, you know, like Alexandria or Rome or Athens or even Jerusalem for Jesus to be born? I mean, there would be better medical care. There'd be more opportunity to share. But God chose this little village of Bethlehem. And not only was Bethlehem, the town, unimportant, but the actual location for the birth was very unassuming. In fact, it reminds me of a true story that I was told about a Christmas program where the young boy that was picked to be the innkeeper was very disappointed because he wanted to play Joseph. And so he pouted and he vowed that he was going to make his part as the innkeeper more important. So finally, the day of the Christmas play arrives and Joseph and Mary, they come to the inn and come to the innkeeper and the innkeeper comes to the door and Joseph says, is there any room for us in the inn? My wife is with child. And this little innkeeper had not thought about this moment for nothing. And so to everyone's surprise, he threw open the door and he said, yeah, come on in. I'll give you my very best room. <laughs> well, Joseph is stunned, of course, but just for a moment. Finally, he says, hey, Mary, wait here. And he steps past the innkeeper and looks around and says, no wife of mine is going to stay in a place like this. And the plot was back on course. <laughs> but you know, I'm more picky than even little Joseph. If I were God, my son would have been born in a palace or at least a first-class hotel. But the son of God was not too good or too proud to be born in an unassuming place. God didn't demand the best. There was no gold-plated plumbing or mink-lined bassinets. In fact, verse 7 tells us this, that she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. Now, we know that a manger is a feeding trough, usually for barnyard animals. That's why we assume, and tradition says, that Jesus was probably born in a barn, or at least a stable, or possibly, more accurately, a cave that was used as a stable. But just think of God allowing his son to be born in such a place. Well, I think the selection of, some, of such a commonplace really demonstrates two things about God that are very important. First of all, it shows the wisdom of God. One of the things, if you've been around barns or stables late at night by yourself, you know that it's almost always quiet. I mentioned last week that I was a police officer, and when I was in Kingsport, Tennessee, and working nights, there was a place called Rotherwood Stables that I, they asked us to make at least a couple of passes through the night, and I love horses, so I used to love to go there in the deepest part of the night, and I can tell you from experience is if you've been at a place like this, you know too, it was very quiet. I mean, there's not a lot of noise, a little rustling of hay and a sound of chewing, and that brings me back to God's wisdom in choosing this place. You see, the hotels of that day were like big bunk houses, lots of people in one dormitory room. 
Becknofel Staten writes, Inns in those days were wild and noisy places, public bazaars, the hawking of wares, eating, drinking, and noisy throughout the night. God didn't want his son to be born among the leering eyes of the curious, and so he sent Mary and Joseph to the quietness of the barn where it really could be a silent night. But secondly, I also think this shows the strength of God. Do you know why we want the top doctor, the best nurses, the most sanitary hospitals, the finest delivery room for our babies? It's because we know that we and they are weak. We're vulnerable, and we want to give our baby the very best opportunity for our life. But none of those things make absolutely any difference to God, for he is the author of life. And the fact that he was born in such an unassuming place, I think, once again, shows that his ways are not our ways, and he chooses the weak things often to shame the strong. But then there's a fourth surprise that I want you to notice, and that is that the birth of Jesus was uneventful, at least in the eyes of the world. The Bible simply says in Luke 2, 6, and while they, Mary and Joseph, were there, the time came for her baby to be born. Doesn't that sound ordinary? (laughs) I mean, that's the very same description that could be given for almost any birth in the world at any time. And again, if I were in charge, I'd have done it differently. I mean, there would have had to be trumpets or confetti or photographs, news bulletins, all kinds of fanfare. After all, this is the king of the universe being born. Oh, there were some things that God did to herald the arrival of his son. He had angels appear to shepherds. He gave a star for the magi to see. But other than those handful of people, the birth was really rather uneventful. It was like any other. Max Locato, who I believe is one of the most descriptive Christian writers of our time, pictures the birth of baby Jesus in this way in his book, God Came Near. He writes, Jesus looks anything but like a king. His face is prunish and red. His cry, though strong and healthy, is still the helpless and piercing cry of a baby. And he is completely dependent upon Mary for his well-being. Majesty in the midst of the mundane. Holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat. Divinity entering the world on the floor of a stable through the womb of a teenager in the presence of a carpenter. I think God designed the birth to be ordinary to show us that while Jesus was completely divine, Jesus was also completely 100% human. You see, the one who had worn the robes of eternity was now sent down the birth canal of one he had created, just exactly like you and I, without some of the amenities that we had. But God wanted us to know that in Jesus, you have someone from the very beginning that had experienced things like us that can identify with all of our troubles and all of our sorrows. Malcolm Mudridge observed, as man alone, Jesus could not have saved us. As God alone, he would not because of our sin. But as Emmanuel, as God with us, he could. And he did. And that brings me to the truth that I'd like you to take home with you today from this story. Now, don't forget how the planning of birth shows God's wisdom, 
Don't forget how the choice of his parents and the supernatural birth it lays the groundwork for our faith, nor forget the strength and compassion to allow his son to be born just like us. And those are all important facts. But here's the central truth from what we've studied this morning that I think is so relevant for our lives, and that is this. God usually does dramatic things in undramatic ways, so be attentive. God usually does dramatic things in undramatic ways, so be attentive. An ordinary child, or so it appeared to be, born in an ordinary place, in an ordinary way, and yet it is the most incredible event in all of history. In fact, Max Lucado, after picturing the birth, describes what people were doing while this dramatic event occurred so undramatically. He writes, meanwhile, the city hums. The merchants are unaware that God has visited their planet. The innkeeper would never believe he had just sent God out into the cold. And the people of Bethlehem would scoff at anyone who told them that the Messiah lay in the arms of a teenager on the outskirts of their village. They were all too busy to consider the possibility. Those who missed his majesty's arrival missed it not because of evil acts or malice. No, they missed it because they simply weren't looking. They weren't attentive. And little has changed in the last 2,000 years, has it? You see, sometimes we miss God working in our lives because we're looking for the spectacular, for the dramatic. But God usually does dramatic things in undramatic ways. Why? Well, I can think of two reasons. First of all, God wants life to be a continuous discovery, not an instantaneous experience or event. God doesn't reveal everything at once, or I think life would be boring. I mean, it's kind of like Christmas presents, right? You, you want to know what you're getting, but you don't want to really know because then the surprise and anticipation and expectation, uh, the expectation would be gone. So I don't think God reveals everything to us dramatically because there'd be no challenge left. There'd be no anticipation. And let's face it, we as human beings learn better if we can uncover it on our own. Life is more exciting when we stretch and discover in his time. But secondly, I think God usually does dramatic things in undramatic ways because the acceptance of God must always come by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, What is faith? It is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Maybe you have thought about making a decision that you need to make for Jesus, but you're waiting for some kind of ironclad proof you're wanting God to do something dramatic in your life to prove it. You're waiting for some electrical shiver or some overwhelming conviction, conviction that brings you to your knees. It's not that that can't happen, but from my experience, not usually. Usually, God does dramatic things in undramatic ways. You come to church for a while, and you begin to get closer and closer, and then one day, maybe today, you place your trust in Jesus. You cross the line and say, you know what? As a believer, I'm going to get serious about this because he was that serious about me. Or as someone who is struggling and wrestling with this whole God thing, you go, you know what? I'm going to investigate this. 
not because I'm waiting on some sky riding in the sky, but because I want to investigate this. I want to see if he do something dramatic in my life, even though it might be undramatic in terms of the way I look at things. And if you'll do that, then he'll help you grow and gradually change you into all that you and he hopes you to be. I have this Christmas story so full of surprises. But you know, maybe the biggest surprise in life was when we learned that this baby of Bethlehem became the Christ of Calvary and showed us that he'd rather die than live without us. And that means that this baby, this Christmas, changes everything. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.